Today's passage is from the ninth chapter of the Acts of Apostles, verses 1 through 19. You can find it at the end of your bulletin, or in your Bible, or phone app, whatever you prefer. Meanwhile, Saul was still breathing out murderous threats against the Lord's disciples. He went to the high priest and asked them for letters to the synagogues in Damascus, so that if he found any there who belonged to the way, whether men or women, he might take them as prisoners to Jerusalem. As he neared Damascus on his journey, suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. He fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Who are you, Lord? Saul asked. I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting, he replied. Now get up and go into the city, and you will be told what you must do. The men traveling with Saul stood there speechless. They heard the sound, but did not see anyone. Saul got up from the ground, but when he opened his eyes, he could see nothing. So they led him by the hand into Damascus. For three days he was blind and did not eat or drink anything. In Damascus there was a disciple named Ananias. The Lord called to him in a vision, Ananias! Yes, Lord, he answered. The Lord said to him, Go to the house of Judas on Straight Street and ask for a man from Tarsus named Saul, for he is praying. In a vision he has seen a man named Ananias come and place his hands on him to restore his sight. Lord, Ananias answered, I have heard many reports about this man and all the harm he has done to your holy people in Jerusalem. And he has come here with authority from the chief priests to arrest all who call on your name. But the Lord said to Ananias, Go. This man is my chosen instrument to proclaim my name to the Gentiles and their kings and to the people of Israel. I will show him how much he must suffer for my name. Then Ananias went to the house and entered it. Placing his hands on Saul, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord, Jesus, who appeared to you on the road as you were coming here, has sent me so that you may see again and be filled with the Holy Spirit. Immediately, something like scales fell from Saul's eyes, and he could see again. He got up and was baptized. And after taking some food, he regained his strength. Saul spent several days with the disciples in Damascus. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Brian. So we are... uh, we're returning to a, a series that we ended late last June, I think. We, last spring, we, uh, we, were, we began a series in the book of Acts. We called it Mission Impossible. And uh, we did a few weeks in it, and well, like two months in it or so. And then we broke for the summer and did some other things. And now we're, we're picking it up again. And one of the questions that we were trying to answer in looking at the book of Acts together was, how in the world did Christianity as a religion succeed so quickly? Uh, It's actually a remarkable story, the story of the spread of Christianity that has a lot of historians baffled because it was a very unique religion, a, a, a different way of looking at the world, and it spread throughout uh, the Roman Empire and then to the rest of the world very, very quickly in comparison to other ideologies and other uh, religion, religions. And so uh, we're trying to understand how in the world that happened. 
Uh, just to give you some quick stats to help you understand how quickly it went. Um, in the year 100, there were about 360 non-Christians for every Christian. So one Christian for every 360 non-Christians. By the year 1500, okay, so 1500 years later, there were about one Christian for every 69 non-Christians. By the 70, the number was one Christian to every 11 non-Christians, and by the year 2010, there was about one Christian for every 6.5 non-Christians. That is a remarkable story, and, and it's actually a story of Christianity spreading more and more quickly as time goes on. So how in the world did that happen? And we're going to be unpacking that for a few weeks together again this, this winter. But this morning, we're going to see that the core of this expansion boiled down to this, this phenomenon called conversion. Conversion. You see, the early Christians, they didn't just join a movement or sign up for something or subscribe to a, 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 a new set of ideas or something, they were, they were converted. And conversion is actually the most radical experience that a human being can undergo. It's the most radical experience that a human being, under, a human being can undergo because, because through conversion, incredible changes happen in an individual. And that's why Christianity grew so much, because people started seeing Christians getting converted, and it rattled them, and it shook them, and it, and it, uh, it drew them. They found themselves drawn to what they experienced, or what they encountered when they encountered this new Christian. So what we're going to do is we're going to look at this phenomenon of conversion uh, this morning as we find it in this very classic text uh, Acts chapter 9, which is Paul's conversion. Now, it says Saul here, and many of us know him as Paul later on. I will flip back and forth between those names. I'll probably call him Paul most of the time, even in this passage. Um, Paul did not undergo a name change like Jacob became Israel or anything like that. Paul, Saul, these were just names that were interchangeable, uh, and he went by both of them. And so that's how we're going to use them in uh, this passage as well. And the reason we're going to do that is, is because there's, or not the reason we're going to interchange the names, but the reason we're going to look at this passage is because there's, there's three kinds of people here this morning. You have, first of all, non-Christians who are here and saying, I'm not really here to listen to this. Uh, maybe I came for the baptism because that's kind of cute and I wanted to support Shane and Leanna, but, but you're not looking for this. You're not looking for Christianity. You're not looking for a change in your life. You're not a seeker. You're pretty comfortable where you are. Well, you know what? Neither was Paul. He wasn't looking to meet Jesus on the Damascus Road. He had his life agenda. He knew what he wanted to do with his life. He was on his way, and yet it happened. And when you read the, the course of the New Testament, you discover that, that Paul is this astoundingly happy, composed uh, uh, sober-minded, yet very uh, fun-loving and uh, joy-filled individual. And so I would hope that if you're a non-Christian and you have to listen to this anyway, that you would be curious about what he encountered. That's the first kind of person. The second kind of person here is the converted. You are a Christian. You are a follower of Jesus Christ. And the question you want to ask yourself is, well, why aren't you more like Paul? 
Why aren't you more joyful? Why aren't you more sober-minded? Why aren't you more poised under pressure? Why, why aren't you more uh, self-controlled in the face of temptation? Why aren't you more like Paul? And, and maybe what you hear this morning will get you thinking about that. And then thirdly, there's a category of people here who are those who think they're converted, but they're not. You think you're converted, but you're not. And if you listen carefully this morning, perhaps you will be able to figure out whether or not that's you and whether or not something needs to be done about it. So we're going to look at this passage together. We're going to discover four things. I'll tell you what those things are as we go along. Here's the first thing we're going to discover, and that is this. Everyone needs conversion. Everyone needs conversion. Now, it's, it's, it's common today and very normal today for people to say, well, I don't really need religion. I don't really need Christianity. I'm not that kind of person. Uh, I remember when Grace Valley was first started, one of the things we did was we, uh, we uh, as a group, the, leader, uh, the launch team, so this is a small group of people who were kind of going to help start this church, we decided to knock on doors and introduce people to Grace Valley Church and tell them, hey, there's a new church in town. Uh, just like to let you know where we worship and when and that kind of thing. And one of the responses you would get from people when you knocked on the door very often was, I'm not very religious. I'm not into that. Thanks anyway, but it's not for me because they're not a religious person. And, and oftentimes people who aren't religious, they will say, well, well, religion is for people who are maybe emotionally weak you know, they have a hard time dealing with the, the hardships in life, and so it kind, of, uh, it kind of operates as a crutch for them to lean on in the hard times, or maybe they say it's for the poor. You know, Christianity is for the poor. Uh, it offers them hope, or maybe Christianity is for the uneducated, you know, people who don't, don't really understand how the world really works, you know, the fact that, that really there is no God and the universe just exists because of a big bang and evolution and all this kind of stuff. And, and, uh, or it's for the people who are super-duper guilty, you know, the people who do something really bad and maybe they spend time in prison and they don't know how to get over their guilt and so this is a way of them uh, dealing with their guilt. But me, I'm kind of a good person. I wouldn't say I'm the best person, but I'm not the worst person. I'm a pretty smart person. I know how the world works and uh, I'm a pretty put together person. You know, I'm not a complete disaster. I haven't done a lot of bad things. I haven't just totally ruined my life. Uh, maybe, uh, you know, I eat too much fatty food or something, but, you know, I'm not, like, going completely off the rails. Well, here's the Apostle Paul, and from one perspective, this guy was really put together. From the perspective of his own worldview and his own culture, he was incredibly well put together. He talks about it in Philippians chapter 3. He was smart, he was, super he was super smart, super educated. He was very successful as a Pharisee, and he was very moral. He was very upright. He was blameless, he said, according to the law of his religion, which was Judaism. Now, maybe you're thinking, well, okay, but you know, all people were religious back then, and so it's kind of easy to convert people from one religion to another because they just all were religious, and hey, religious is, religion is sort of the same thing wherever you go anyway. Well, that's not true. Um, first of all, more and more studies have come out recently in the last 50 years or so that demonstrate that it is extremely hard, it is incredibly hard for a person to change their beliefs about something. Uh, if your people group 
if your culture, your ethnicity, your family, clan believe a certain way, it is very hard, extremely hard for a person to actually go against that and change their beliefs. If they're deeply seated beliefs, it's hard to unseat them, okay? And Paul was a Pharisee, you see. As a Pharisee, that meant that he was a religiously hardcore Jew. You know how you have you know, if you ask a person, are you a Christian? And they might say, well, yeah. Do you go to church? Well, no. Do you believe in God? Well, yeah. Do you, you know, live for him? Well, kind of. You know, they kind of, you have people who are sort of kind of Christian, sort of culturally, and then you have people who are like hardcore. They're in church all the time. They read their Bibles. They pray. They evangelize. They uh, are generous with their money. They kind of really are into it. And you see this sort of spectrum, right? And and people would say, well, back then, you know, there were people like that too. But Paul, you see, he was on the hardcore end of the spectrum. And yet, he was converted. And just let me add this very brief, very quickly. One of the unique things about Christianity is that it is the most diverse belief system on the planet today. And it's not even close. Not even close. Most of your atheists and seculars, no offense, but they're people like us. White, Western, successful. Most of the rest of the world is not atheistic. Most Buddhists are found in South Asia. Most Hindus are found in South Asia. Most Muslims are found in the Middle East. Christianity is the only religion where, where the geographical kind of location goes all over the place. It starts in Jerusalem, and it starts in Palestine, and then it extends to Asia Minor, and then it kind of goes over to Europe, and then it comes to North America. And now you're finding Christianity growing in Latin America, and in Africa, in China, by leaps and bounds, whereas in the rest of the world, in the west of the west, we see it stagnating. And that's because Christianity is a remarkably diverse faith because it is a unique faith that is rooted in this gospel of grace, which we'll get to in a minute. So when people say, well, you know, I don't need Christianity because I'm kind of a put-together person, Paul was an incredibly put-together person. And yet, from another perspective, Paul was terrible. From within the church, from inside the Christian faith, Saul was considered an enemy. He absolutely hated the church. He hated Christianity. In Acts chapter 8, we read that he was there when Stephen was being stoned and people were watching him die. He was standing there going, uh-huh, uh-huh, yeah, see, that's, that's stone. That'll really work. Uh, he was really a, a, a fan of seeing the church being, being uh, stamped out and being uh, put, put to death. He had letters written so that he could go to Damascus and on the authority of the Jews, the Jewish leaders in Jerusalem, he could go into people's houses and he could uh, drag them off to jail. This guy was bad news. And, and you know, you, you hear of people who are hostile to the Christian faith. You know, they, ah, uh, you know, Christians, they're foolish, they're silly, they're, you know, non-intellectual, anti-intellectual, or those kinds of things, or, or they're really hostile, like, you know, Richard Dawkins type people who try to write books to prove Christianity's not true and prove that religion is bad, while well, Paul was off the charts, okay? And so, in a sense, his conversion is incredibly unlikely, if, if you're here this morning and you're thinking to yourself, well, I could never be a Christian because I'm too far gone. 
I'm too much of a mess. I'm too much of a sinner. I've done things in my life. I've said things in my life. I've experienced things in my life that have made me too much damaged goods or, or, or too much of a disaster for me to be a believer. Look at Paul. He was the most unlikely convert out there. Whoever thought Kanye West would be a Christian? Now, some of you maybe are questioning, is he a Christian? Fair enough, I get it. You, you ask questions and you kind of wonder. But the guy says he's a Christian. He says that he believes that Jesus is the Son of God who lived the life he should have lived and died the death he should have died. Kanye West, who I know very little about except from what my kids tell me. Years ago, like 10 years ago, Kanye West, a Christian, would have made every one of us laugh, apparently. So, what am I trying to say? It is actually laughably easy for God to convert anyone. If you're here this morning and you have someone in your life who's not a believer, maybe they're a family member or a very close friend or a colleague at work, I don't know, whatever, but you look at that person and you think to yourself, never in a million years would that person ever, ever become a Christian. First of all, conversion is for everyone. Second of all, conversion means encountering the risen Jesus. Look at verse 4. Saul fell to the ground and heard a voice say to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Verse 5, who are you, Lord? Saul asked. I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. To convert means to put your trust in the resurrected Jesus, who is the Son of God, who lived, who died, who rose again, who ascended. That's who Peter, or sorry, who Paul encountered in this moment. He encountered this person, Jesus, whom he thought was dead, but it turns out is alive. You see, people will say it doesn't really matter what you believe so long as you believe it sincerely. You can be a sincere adherent of any kind of belief system, and what really matters is that you're a good person, you're kind to other people, and you believe your stuff sincerely. But frankly, that doesn't make sense. Christians, you're so exclusive. Christians, you're so close-minded. No, 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 no. Christians believe that we need a savior, and we believe that Jesus is that savior because Jesus actually died and proved that he was the savior when he rose again from the grave. He's resurrected. He's the only person in history who ever did it, and by doing it, he proved that he, when he said, I am dying for your sins, he really did, and sincerity, frankly, has nothing to do with it. Look, here's two people who decide to go bungee jumping. Why? I don't know but they want to go bungee jumping. And person A has a one-inch rope and believes very sincerely in this one-inch rope that it will hold them. And person B has this big, fat, four-inch rope, and they're kind of freaked out about bungee jumping and wondering whether or not that rope is going to save them. And off they jump. And the person off the end of the, end of the, of the one-inch rope, it goes snap, and they plunge to the death. And the person at the end of the four-inch rope, it, it, it goes sprawling, and uh, they come back, and they survive. Why? Because the four-inch rope actually held and the one-inch rope didn't. Who cares how sincere you are in your beliefs if they're wrong? It's not our sincerity that matters. Paul was very, very sincere. He thought Jesus was dead. He thought his followers were a, 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 
threat to his belief system and he was doing everything in his power to stop it. And then he encountered the stubborn fact, a risen Jesus that he couldn't get around. He couldn't escape that. People have a lot of problems with Christianity. I understand that. I, I, I was there at one point in my life as well. For example, right now, People have a lot of problems with Christianity's view of sexuality, human sexuality, and what is permissible and what, is, what isn't. And so they say, well, I can't believe that stuff. But Paul had problems with Christianity too. Here he was meeting this person, Jesus, who said, I am God in the flesh and I have come to fulfill all those Old Testament beliefs that you have held for so many years, Paul, and all those Old Testament beliefs that your people have held for thousands and thousands of years. The sacrificial system, I fulfilled it. No need for it anymore. The temple system, I fulfilled it. No need for it anymore. I know that God told you you should never make an image in the form of anything in heaven and on earth or, or under the earth and you should not bow down and worship them, but you should bow down and worship me because I am the image of the invisible God. And by the way, there's this thing called the Trinity. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. We exist together as three persons, but one God. And, and Paul couldn't understand all that. It didn't make sense to him at first. And yet, he's stuck with this stubborn fact of Jesus standing before him saying, I am who I said I am. The point is this, you gotta start with Jesus, not with your objections. I know people have all kinds of objections to the Christian faith, but you gotta start with this person of Jesus. Have you had an encounter with him? And maybe you say, well, not like that. I mean, I didn't have a light go off and me falling off my horse and freaking out and now I'm blinded. I didn't have this sort of Damascus Road experience like Paul did, but you know what? Paul's experience was unique that way. You read in Acts chapter 16 of a, guy na a woman named Lydia. You know how she was converted? A Bible study. What? Really? That's not very dramatic and fun. Or the Ethiopian eunuch, just one chapter earlier in, in Acts chapter 8. Basically the same thing. He's reading the Bible. He doesn't understand it. Philip explains it to him and he goes, oh. The truth I've always been wondering about, I finally understand. i got to be baptized right now. How do you know if you've had an encounter with the real Jesus? Well, you realize that this living, resurrected Jesus, that he died for you. You know, it's interesting that Jesus says to, to Saul, he says, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Your problem has not been that you are breaking the law. Your problem ultimately is that you are defying me. You are personally rebelling against me. You want to rule over your own life. You are at war with me. And yet I died for you anyway. While you were at war with me, I died for you anyway. And having an encounter with this Jesus is recognizing that, seeing in your own life that you've been doing everything in your power to avoid his rule over you, to avoid his claim to authority over your life, and you have been trying to make yourself your own authority, and you've been doing everything in your power to, to, to refute him and to avoid him, and if he gets too close, you'll even fight him, and if you had to, you'd kill him. It's not just about breaking laws. You know, Charles Spurgeon great preacher from the 1800s. He tells a story to illustrate this. Very quickly, he says this. He says, 
you know, there was, uh, there was this family. Imagine that there was this, this husband and wife, and they were awful, awful people, and they had a child, and they were not fit to parent this child because they would be terribly abusive to this child. And so that child was whisked away from their parents and, and given to a good family and a good home where they were raised. And those, that man and that woman, they continued to be horrible, horrible people. But this boy grew up, this child, this boy grew up and became very, very successful and, and uh, became very wealthy and at one point wanted to try to reconcile with his birth parents and try to do something to help them. And so he traveled to meet them. But the father, he had a habit of staying alongside of the road and, uh, and robbing people as they were on their travels. That's one of the ways that he made his money. And so the father sees the son, but he doesn't know it's his son, and he, he comes along the road, and he attacks the son, and he, 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 he takes the, the bit of money that he has off him, and then he kills him. And what he thinks he has done is he thinks he's broken the law. He's, he's robbed, and he's committed murder, but what he's done actually is, is he's put to death his redeemer. That's what Paul did. He participated in the death of his Redeemer. That's what every single one of us has done when we reject Jesus and when we, we, we say we want nothing to do with him, we are participating in the death of our Redeemer. And having an encounter with him is coming to recognize that and saying, you know what, I am a helpless and hopeless lost sinner just like Paul experienced when he was blinded. Why do you think Jesus blinded him? What was the point of that? He blinded him to show him that he was helpless. Now Paul had to be led around by the hand to get where he needed to go and he couldn't do anything until those blinders were taken off his eyes because he needed to see that he was absolutely, desperately in need of his Savior and you and I need to see that too. That's how you know. So conversion is for everyone. Conversion means meeting the resurrected Jesus. Thirdly, conversion means a change in identity and purpose. In verse 15 it says this, the Lord said to Ananias, this man is my chosen instrument to proclaim my name to the Gentiles and their kings and to the people of Israel. I will show him how much he must suffer for my name. God tells Ananias, Saul is a new person. And it's true because Saul becomes the uh, evangelist to the Gentiles. Now he was a hardcore Jew. And now he's hanging out with Gentiles all the time. He spends his time with them, and a hardcore Jew would never spend time with, a, with Gentiles because it made them unclean. And before, when he would never, ever dare proclaim the gospel of Jesus, and he wanted to put this gospel to death, and he wanted to silence the church and stamp it out forever, now he's going to be proclaiming this gospel. He's going to be saying it's the truth. He's going to suffer very seriously and heavily for believing it and proclaiming it. Why? Because he's a new person, and because he has a new purpose. See, I'm going really fast, I know, but, the, but we need to understand that the Bible says that when you become a Christian, you are what's called united to Jesus Christ. And that sounds weird, and it sounds kind of flaky and mystical. And it, and it is mysterious, it is, but it's not that weird. What it means is this, what happened to him happened to you. Romans 6 says that every Christian has died with Christ, and you're sitting here going, I didn't die. And Ephesians 2 says that every Christian has been raised with Christ. And you're like, I haven't been raised. I didn't die. I haven't been raised. What does that mean? What it means is this. What actually happened to Jesus spiritually happened to you. It's as though it happened to you. So that when Jesus died for sin, it's as though you had died for your sin. And when Jesus was raised to new life, it's as though you had been raised to new life. Spiritually, this has happened to you. 
Now, what's the point of that? Well, stick with me. Think about this. When you come to faith in Jesus Christ, you go to bed one day. Okay, let's say at 10 o'clock at night, you become a Christian. And you go to sleep at 10.30, and you wake up at 6.30 the next morning. And what has changed in your life? You're in the same house. You got the same family, right? You're going to go to the same job. You've got the same amount of money. Nothing's really, really changed. And yet, and yet, even though nothing seems to have changed, everything has changed. Everything in your life has changed because when you went to bed, before you went to bed, you had no way of dealing with the guilt in your life. The only way you could deal with your guilt for the things you said and did that you know were contrary, not just even to God's law, but contrary to your own conscience. You're not even the person you want to be. And the only way you could deal with it is you could say, well, you know, everybody screws up sometimes. Or it's not as bad as you think it is. Or don't worry about it, just ignore it, just pretend like it never happened, even though it sits there in the deep, dark secrets of your your conscience and you can't escape it because it gnaws at you like a rat gnawing on a cord. But now you wake up the next day and you can say that my sins have been forgiven and my guilt, if I still have it, is my failure to believe the gospel and so I will stop looking at my sin and I will start looking at my Savior. That's changed. The debt's been paid. Before, when you went to bed, you knew that you were supposed to have some kind of purpose in your life, but you had to figure it out. What are we here for? I don't know. You figure it out. You're here for whatever you think you're here for. But now you wake up in the morning and you know what you're here for. You know your purpose is to bring glory and honor to your Savior and to spread His gospel to those around you and to live a life that pleases Him. You know that. Before you went to bed, you wondered, could anybody actually really know me completely to the bottom, all the warts and all and everything, and love me regardless of that? Or do I have to somehow measure up and earn their love and earn their affection? And you wake up the next morning, and because you know that God sent Jesus to live for you and die for you while you were still a sinner, you know that he knows you just as you are, warts and all, and loves you just the same, and does not matter how you live now, because a billion years from, yet, from now, when you are perfect, he will not love you more than he loves you in this moment right here, right now. And before you went to bed, if you had the guts, and 95% of human beings do not even have the guts, but if you had the guts to think about the fact that you could die in your sleep, you were afraid. Because you had all these regrets from the days past, and you had all this fear about what comes after death. But now, now you know that even if you die, Death is only a gateway to life because death has lost its sting. Because of your union with Jesus Christ, your circumstances haven't changed, but everything's changed because you're changed. That's why it's called the new birth. You've been born again. You're a new person. Now, it takes time to live that out, to experience that, to press that out into your daily living. It takes time, and it takes discipline, and it takes practice. And that's why many of you are, are, are even, even though you're Christians, you hear me talking like this, and you go, I have such little experience of that. You know why? Because you haven't been working at it. In a way, 
growing in your spirituality, in your, in your relationship with Christ, it's a little bit like sailing. You can't get anywhere on your own, but you still have to put up the sail. Now, when you're sailing, it's the wind that pushes you along, but you've got to put up your sail and catch the wind. And you and I, we have to put up our sails and catch the wind if we're going to actually live out of the experience of the objective truth of being a follower of Jesus Christ. Um, can I use Lord of the Rings as another illustration? You know I'm into it right now. Um, those of you who are guests, um, I love Lord of the Rings, and I just had a resurrection of my, my love for it because I watched all the movies again over Christmas with my kids, and so I'm really into it again. Um, union with Christ means that you are treated like him. And so God honors Jesus for his victory over sin and death and hell and his death and his resurrection. And when he honors Jesus, it means that you will be honored as if you had won victory over sin and death and hell. And let me explain how this works. So most of you probably are into the movies and less into the books. This scene is a little different in the books than it is in the movies. If you're a hardcore book person, I apologize for not being true to the book. We're going to use the movie because, let's face it, most people don't read in 2019 anymore or 2020 anymore. There's a scene at the end of Return of the King. It is the last mo the, the, one of the last scenes in the last movie. And Aragorn, the long-lost king, has returned to take his throne. And he is good, and he is wise, and he is strong, and he is fearless, and he has demonstrated that he deserves to sit on the throne as the king of Gondor and to rule over all the kings of men because of his bravery and courage in the last battles uh, for Middle-earth where he was victorious. And in the scene, he has taken the crown that has been put upon him and he has taken his, his elven wife's arm and he is walking through the people and there's a sea of people and, and he's walking through them and they are all nodding to him and bowing to him and, and giving honor to him and, and he deserves this because of all the greatness that he has displayed in his courage and in, in battle. And as the sea opens up, all of a sudden you see these four little hobbits and they look like small children, but they're, they're these hobbit creatures. And they stand before Aragorn in all his majesty and glory, and they begin to bow. And as they begin to bow, Aragorn reaches out and stops them and says, No, my friends. And he stands them up, up and he says, You bow to no one. And then he gets down on one knee in front of these hobbits, and as he does it, his gorgeous elven wife does the same thing and then all the people bow and you see these four little hobbits just staring over this sea of humanity all bowing before him makes me cry every time I see it now you may say but they earned that right but if you know the story well you know that they didn't because Frodo actually couldn't give up the ring in the end and yet they were honored And Aragorn, in the book version, he says, praise them with all praise. Friends, if you are united to Jesus Christ, that is the future that awaits you. I know you don't believe it. Because you're not much different from me, and I don't believe it. That's why I need to rehearse it. That's why I need to preach it to myself. That's why I need to press it down into my being. 
Here were these nobodies honored by all. That's what it's like for you when you're a believer. Nobodies like you and me are honored by the king of the universe. You don't deserve it, but you get it anyway. And that changes you. When that changes you, when that sinks into you, that changes you, that makes you a more magnanimous person, a more generous person, a more poised person, a more joyful person, a more person like Paul who unpacked that for many, many decades over the course of his life. And it also means, friends, that he's hurting for you in your suffering. I can't spend much time at this, but I need to at least mention it. You notice that, that Jesus says to Saul, why are you persecuting me? And Saul is like probably thinking, what are you talking about? I didn't go after you. I'm going after your disciples. Exactly. Jesus identifies so closely with you that he suffers with you. When you suffer, he suffers. There is comfort in knowing that your Savior knows exactly what you're going through. Some of you are going through really, really hard things right now. Some of you are going through the, 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 the absolutely shocking, unexpected death of a friend or family member. Just happened last week completely out of, blue, out of the blue and inexplicable. And you are suffering under that and you are feeling the pain of that. And the gospel is that Jesus identifies with you in that. You are not alone. You can go to him with it and he understands what you're feeling. That's conversion. That's conversion. Last point very quickly. Conversion means the church better be ready for it. Uh, because when you become a part of the church, when you are converted, you become part of God's family, and that is the church. You know, in, in verses 11 and 12, it says, God says to Ananias, go to the house of Judas on Straight Street and ask for a man from Tarsus named Saul, for he is praying in a vision. He has seen a man uh, named Ananias come and place his hands on him to restore his sight. <laughs> and Ananias, it's kind of comical. We don't, we, don't, we don't see the funny in the Bible, but it's there. Ananias responds, um, Lord, uh, I heard many reports about this man and all the harm he has done to your holy people in Jerusalem, and he has come here with authority from the chief priests to arrest all who call on your name. Can you imagine this assignment? Hey, sworn enemy of the church, I need you to go, uh, I got a sworn enemy of the church over here, I need you to go and uh, put your hands on him and restore his sight to him. And of course, Ananias says, uh, you sure you got the right guy? This guy is like super bad news. He's dumbfounded. You're saving him? And Interestingly, Ananias, he, he listens to the Lord's response in verse 15, but he goes, and so he goes. And one of the most remarkable things happens. In verse 17, it says, Then Ananias went to the house and entered it. Placing his hands on Saul, he said, Brother Saul. In that moment, Ananias accepts and folds, receives Saul into the family. It's unbelievable. Are we ready to accept Saul? Are we ready to, to see the Sauls of the world come here and, and become part of this community? Or are we ready to go out to where the Sauls of the world are, the messed up, the enemies of the church? See, 
deep down, we like having people like us in church. Mostly together, on the surface, if we discover that they're really bad, maybe we can, you know, and they're really messed up, maybe we can give them sort of uh, uh, professional counseling somewhere or something. We don't have to get too messy into their lives, you know. We want people who can serve in our nurseries. We want people who we are comfortable with inviting to our small groups. And they're not going to kind of wig everybody out. But the family of God is like no other community on earth. It's a community not of the put together, but for the, a community of the, the disasters. Disastrous? The messed up, the screwed up. The people who say, I got problems, big problems. I got problems with substances. I got problems with emotions. I got problems with relationships. I got problems with money. I got problems with sex my sexuality. I got problems. And the church is a place where everybody gets up and says, yes, we've all got problems, and that's precisely why we're here. So that the world could be shocked. You know, the world was shocked when they saw the church. They saw rich, poor, they saw together, they saw the, the, very, uh, uh, the very respectable and the very disrespectable together in fellowship around tables, eating together, coming into each other's homes, not freaking out and worrying about what the gossip mill would, sa would say about who was where, with whom, and why. It brought together ethnic divisions, or people of diverse ethnicities, and brought them together around the same table. It was a shocking community. And we need to be ready to be that too, as we hope and pray for conversion. Okay. Let's stop there. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, not a dramatic ending to the message, but that's okay because the picture we have of the church is this community knit together by the blood of Jesus, uh, living moment by moment by grace. Please make us that kind of community. Do what has to happen in us to become that kind of community. For those who aren't converted, I pray for a curiosity. Let's just start there. For those who thought they were converted, and realize they haven't been, I pray for that encounter with your son. And for those who do know Jesus, I pray that we would live more authentically out of that knowledge and more freely because of the reality that we are saved by grace. Do this in us, Father, for your glory we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.